Hey everybody, Eric Renya here, and welcome to the 47th episode of the RIT Podcast. Last Friday, an important deadline passed in the Conservative leadership race. To be eligible to vote, members had to be signed up by June 3rd. Since then, we've heard the campaigns boast about their sign-ups and their paths to victory. Jean Charest says he has the points. Patrick Brown says he has signed up 150,000 members. Pierre Poilievre claims just over 300,000. In all, the party says there will be well over 600,000 members eligible to vote in this race. So to discuss what these numbers mean and where the contest goes from here, I'm joined this week by Chad Rogers, founding partner at Crestview Strategy, Tim Powers, chairman at Zuma Strategies, and Stephanie Levitz of the Toronto Star. Hey, everybody. Hey. Hey, Eric. You know, this is the first podcast I'm doing since the Ontario election. So I'd actually first like to start with um, if there's any lessons from the Ontario election for the Conservative leadership race, or if they're too different, uh, anything, you know, that if you were a voting member, uh, if you saw what happened in the Ontario election might inform your choice. Chad, you want to kick us off? Well, if you said the post-COVID mood of a grouchy country and the conservative broader coalition being more prone to grouchiness than most, you would think that 2022 would be the year of incumbents paying a price of grouchiness, uh, like we saw with the leadership review in Alberta uh, that saw Jason Kenney resign. And there was no evidence of that in Ontario. So at least Ontario conservatives, uh, to the extent that the the provincial uh, voters uh, for Doug Ford uh, live in the federal coalition, um, they, they weren't unhappy with their incumbents. I mean, one member of a caucus plus adding, uh, um, you know, just under 10 more for, for an 83 uh, under Doug Ford, it's a, it was a big win. And there just wasn't a, a lot of that, um, that post-COVID reactive, I'm mad at everyone for what I've been forced to live uh, with. I don't like the establishment actor. I'll just side with whoever's the loudest or the crankiest. There was none of that sentiment uh, living in Ontario we saw in Alberta a few months back. Tim, is there any real difference between the Ontario PCs and the federal conservatives in terms of the makeup of the party and the membership, that kind of thing? Uh, well, Chad would know better than I. He's had more involvement, but let me pick up on his grouchy theme. Uh, and also, I think the lesson is don't be a grouch if you're uh, a leader uh, all of the time. And maybe there's a candidate in this race who wants to pay attention to that. Grouch and grievance works for a while. I, I look, the, uh, the makeup of the PC party of Ontario, I think, is not entirely identical to the makeup of the federal conservative party for a whole bunch of different reasons. There are big, there are members of the Ontario PC party who fit comfortably in the conservative party. Uh, and the Ontario PC party attracted voters uh, who, uh, who vote liberal uh, from time to time, clearly. And the federal party has to look at all of that. I think the lesson, one of the lessons from Doug Ford, and again, it's not entirely uh, transferable uh, with ease, is if you, you, you need to build some sort of coalition and some sort of alliances to succeed. When you delimit your voting pool, you delimit your chance to win. And I think Ford figured that out uh, as best he could for what he was offering. Stephanie, I don't know if you have any broader thoughts as well, but also I'm curious to people you've talked to, if the Ontario election posed any problems for uh, the membership or drives or each of the, any of the campaigns. I mean, it certainly to some extent limited their almost their tactical capabilities in the province for a little while. The idea of holding really big rallies like Pierre Pauly have been doing earlier in Ontario, that would be a bit unseemly to be seen as, you know, taking away any energy um, 
On the converse, right, Doug Ford had told his candidates and, and members of his party to stay away from the leadership race, do not engage, do not help, you know, focus on winning your own seats. And I think we might see a change now in, in the coming weeks where you will see members of the Ontario Progressive Conservative Caucus getting more engaged in the leadership race. So that helps, right? That There's a volunteer base, right? And a volunteer pool that was taken up with the provincial election. And now they can be free to do the super important work of the, the final stages of the federal race, which is, you know, getting out the vote, helping raise money, all of these things that candidates really need. And, and GOTV really is, is crucial. Get out the vote. I mean, literally how these candidates will win with these membership numbers. And that's as important in big ridings with big membership as it is in smaller ridings, if not more important. So they need every volunteer they can get, especially for the campaigns that might not be raking in, you know, the money to pay the pay the staff that could also do this work. Um, so let's get to the numbers themselves. So Stephanie, uh, the party came out on Thursday saying that there will be well over six hundred thousand members. Um, we'll we'll get a final count. It sounds like sometime next month. It does sound like a, they're going to only send out a list, a final list of voters. In quite a while, it seems like a long time for. Uh, I think if I remember the re- release correctly, it said the end of July they'll get that final list. Uh, Stephanie, what's your take on the size of these these mem- uh, membership numbers, the claims that we've had from each of the party, and the fact that Poliev seems to be claiming that he signed up half of these people? So, I mean, starting with the overall number, the above six hundred thousand number. I mean, that is a record shattering number for any political party in this country. Uh, never mind a leadership race, like just set that aside. Like we're talking about card carrying paid up members of a political party in this country. And that's a fantastic number. And what I, I, I know this might sound a bit, you know, dorky or overly naive, but in an era where people seem to increasingly lose trust in institutions and not trust the system and not want to engage that you could get 600,000 people to pay 15 bucks to buy into the system, um, I think is a really healthy sign. And you could, you know, you could argue that, well, the messaging that might be drawing some of them in gives some people pause and it's uncomfortable, but the point is they're opting in and they could choose to opt out. And I think that's great. And I think that all of the candidates um, in the party writ large are actually gonna have quite an interesting time after this race is over because there are 600,000 new members mm-hmm. of the party and the extent to which they remain active, the party wants them to remain active, how they leverage that, how it could change um, you know, the, the riding association boards, how it could change policy development for the party. Like generally speaking, this is a really positive thing. And it, I hope that the party is thinking about that, you know, thinking ahead about what do we do with these new members uh, in terms of which campaign signed up who? I mean, if you do a little bit of the math, if you say that Pierre Polyev is claiming 311,000, Patrick Brown is claiming 150,000, there were about 142,000 paid up members as of the end of March. That was the last list the party had handed out. Okay, that takes you well over 600,000. So does that mean Jean Charest and Leslie Lewis and Roman Babber and Scott Aitchison signed up zero members? I don't think that's true. So, you know, party sources have told me that they expect anywhere from 10 to 20% of the like let's say the claimed numbers to just be invalidated like which is to say multiple membership signups um problems with credit cards so i don't know that the claims are wildly outstated they're certainly outstated but we're never going to know because the party will never release that final number of who sold what i should say individually who sold what yeah, yeah, yeah. Despite the Polyev campaign asking the party to do that, um, I'm not. Maybe they knew they wouldn't, so maybe it was a safe thing to say. But Chad, uh, Stephanie brings up something, you know, saying this is a lot of new members into the party. 
Uh, how do you keep a lot of those people engaged? Because are they going to be donors uh, after September 10th? Are they going to be, you know, banging in lawn signs? Um, because it, it does seem like it, it might be difficult to get a lot of those people to continue to be conservative members after their one year expires. Well, conservative membership is also something that um, peaks during the periods in which you need your membership card. So the actual reminder to pay your fee and be a paid up member as opposed to just stay on the list peaks around leadership. So there is a uh, like a soft uh, sine wave that occurs on uh, a peak membership number when you've got to have a membership to participate, like in voting for a convention, big policy moments, leaderships, party processes where they test your membership at the door versus the year where you might be able to forget in the middle of a mandate or uh, in the stretch. So I, I wouldn't read the up down as uh, inorganic or as a sign of people walking away in a huff or saying, uh, wow, that wasn't worth the 10 bucks. I think um, the Conservative Party has really been the first in Canada on keeping small dollar mobilization, member mobilization high, and, and the New Democrats in second place. And I think this membership number also really puts the nail in the coffin that the Justin Trudeau liberals were right to end paid membership and the connection with a party as a means of growing their, their overall activist base. I think they went in one direction and tried one experiment that uh, uh, if I were the executive director of the Liberal Party today, I'd be looking over at the revenue and the list growth that the uh, conservatives have achieved organically and be awfully jealous of it. Um, you know, how do you keep people involved? You talk to them, you listen to them, you reach out to them regularly. Uh, for those who are cursed with being on the Conservative Party text and email lists, you know that they do that pretty well and very frequently. <laughs> um, but, but let's build on Stephanie's point on mobilization, right? We have 338 uh, electoral district associations in Canada. That's what we call what, what Tim and I as boys used to call ridings. Um, the riding associations now have roughly 2,000 members apiece. Now, there are areas where that goes up and down, but I grew up in a conservative party provincially and federally where a third of the ridings were moribund. Uh, if they didn't have a member, if they hadn't elected a member in a while, you had to go kickstart them every campaign and hope they came back to life. There just aren't dead ridings in the federal conservative party anymore. It's amazing. Uh, to me, as someone who grew up you know, with a two-seat party, um, the, the, the last thing I'd say is big tent works, um, having people who disagree on a number of things, but agree on some fundamentals, uh, it works, um, big tent looks to outsiders like a family brawl, but it's kind of, uh, uh, look, um, my husband's family is from a different ethnocultural background than, than I am. And when we gather for family meals, I think they're all screaming at each other. Apparently they're just talking. Um, uh, that's a difference. That's kind of like outsiders looking at the conservative race and confusing in a big tent when people choose to argue about a few of the things they disagree on, they forget that there's a bigger thing holding them all together in one club that they agree on, you know, small government, lower taxes, principal foreign policy, uh, those fundamentals kind of hang true. And people think the party delivers on that, that it's a worthwhile enough club for representing the things they agree on. Uh, and that the leadership is the time when you scrap about the areas where you disagree to, to hold some space so that, you know, you get some voice in a, in a future cabinet or a senior critics bench or in a platform. But Tim, do you think that the, you know, the 150,000 people that Patrick Brown claims have signed up, if Polyev wins, um, are, are they going, to, how many of them will think that they're still in the same tent? No idea. Uh, we won't know till the, but I got to pick up on Chad's point. I love that stitching of what a happy conservative family is. Such a happy family that 
you know, people are calling each other liars and uh, suggesting they have major character flaws. It's a unique family for sure. The Brady Bunch, it is certainly not. Um, whether it becomes the Brady Bunch, we'll see. So to your question, Eric, look, whoever wins this thing is going to have to do work. Uh, both uh, Chad and Steph have alluded to that too. Um, find that common ground that uh, Chad framed so nicely and perhaps optimistically to for, for those who will feel dislocated now. They feel part of something now. They feel like they're part of an exercise to get their person to win. Uh, and they're, they're engaged in all of that, but it, there will only be one winner. So those who were in other camps who came on board for the person uh, that they championed are, are going to need to be spoken with and dealt with and reached out to and made to feel like there's still a place for them. That is the biggest challenge, finding a cord that a new leader will have because yes, there have been healthy disagreements, but they've been pretty personal as well too. And that, that leaves a sting, not just for the candidates, but for the people who support them. But if I can just jump back in, like the quant, uh, you know, Tim does a lot of charity work that we all admire. And if you sit on the board of a not-for-profit charity or you sit down with a development director of a charity, they estimate the cost of acquiring a monthly donor. Uh, so let's use that as a proxy for a member in a political party, someone who's likely to donate small amounts, someone who's likely mm -hmm. to pay you once a year and stick around beyond the mailing list. The cost, according to Imagine Canada, in the not-for-profit space to acquire a monthly donor is about 375 bucks. So when you see those street canvassers who are out trying to get you to sign a clipboard or people phoning you, um, it is not insignificant to have an exercise that onboards and freshens a list with 600,000 plus yeah, people. Absolutely. This is like, there's not a hospital foundation in the country who isn't having a meeting going, how do we do what they just did? Because uh, it, it's different and it means more. So the, the before we debate the negative, we've got to kind of stand back and say, holy smokes, does wide participatory democracy ever work? And remember, unlike the Americans and unlike the UK, where our conservative traditions come from, we created this Democratic Party tradition organically when Dalton Camp decided to take uh, try and take out Diefenbaker. Uh, this whole notion of a democratic franchise of parties, the, the other parties in Canada took decades to follow the Conservatives. The UK still hasn't finished doing it. The, the caucus gets the vote down to the last two. The Americans have a highly regulated uh, gerrymandered system uh, uh, of primary. So this notion of democracy on the party side, not just on the general election side, it really pays a dividend. It's worth appreciating as a case study because most of our uh, uh, analogous Western partners don't do it this way. And in this case, a $9 million dividend. So that's not a bad return. Yeah, that's one thing I think the Liberals would be probably looking at. But, you know, uh, Chad, I don't want to get into the history too much, but I wonder if uh, people within the Conservative Party wonder if Dalton Camp started off something good for the Conservatives, considering <laughs> that they've often have a lot more trouble internally from uh, than externally. But let's actually talk about um, the leadership paths now. So Poilievre claims 300,000, Brown claims 150,000, Charest claims he has the points, and it is a point system, so that really matters. You do have to win points in every riding. It's not about running up the numbers in Alberta. And you can see from Poilievre's claim numbers that he, he's overrepresented in Alberta, underrepresented in Quebec, but in all likelihood, every other candidate's probably running into some of the same stuff. But Stephanie, we can start with you. Based on those numbers and based on the claims from the various candidates, where do you think everything stands up now? Is this just is this Polyev's now to lose on the first ballot? You know what? It's so hard. I mean, it seems like it, 
right? I, math, look, I'm in the writing business. Math is the thing that sends me screaming and running in the other direction. On, you know, you, you're the numbers guy, Eric, not me. But when you just look at the numbers and, and you look at, you know, if he does have, let's say, you know, he's got members in every single riding in the country and more of them than any other candidate. And I would suspect that there are candidates like Leslie Lewis, for example, who may in fact have a majority of members in her support in Saskatchewan, in Manitoba, in some of the ridings in the West. And you can see a bit of that in Polyev's numbers maybe, but um, it seems like it ought to be, but there are six candidates on the ballot. Uh, we can't discount Leslin Lewis. I mean, you know, her campaign is not releasing membership totals, but she does have a very strong following. Um, one of the, you know, anti-abortion groups, um, you know, has claimed, for example, that they've, they alone have sold 6,000 memberships in this contest, like not for any particular candidate per se, just of their own moxie. Uh, so where do those voters go? Um, and that's something we don't, with this total number, again, there was some number of memberships that were sold not directly through any candidate, right? So where do those members line up and where they go? So mathematically, does it appear to be Polyev's on the first ballot? It looks like it could be, but there is Leslin Lewis, there's Patrick Brown and Jean Charest and where their memberships line up. Um, and I don't mean to you know, discount Roman or Scott Aitchison, they will have some measure of support that will maybe preclude Pierre from a, a, an easy first ballot. But I mean, I don't expect Pierre to have, I'm picking a number, like 32% on the first ballot, right? It, it is winner take all for him to be well above 40 on the first ballot does not seem unreasonable at this point. Chad, you were, uh, you were nodding. Uh, just to, if I recall correctly, Lewis got about 45,000 votes on the first ballot. So you can already imagine that, you know, at least there's that chunk of voters who are probably going to vote for her again. So right there, that's a big chunk of those votes. But uh, Chad, what do you think? Is this, uh, are we heading towards the first ballot? We got three months to go. Look, you never even want to tempt yourself uh, with that because uh, uh, I remember in the 1997 federal leadership of one of the precursor parties, the Progressive Conservative Party, where Joe Clark, it was clear at the end of that race with Joe Clark's return to federal life that he was going to win. And he ended up coming out, I think we were 48.7. Uh, and then had to sustain the process for two more weeks because he was that shy of 50. Joe was always uh, bad at getting close to the number he'd target for yeah. uh, <laughs> in a few points and causing. Um, but but uh, to, to Stephanie's point, there's a couple of numbers things that I'm going to wait until the delegate trackers start their work and the list starts getting worked over in the next three to four weeks. One is where does the overlap uh, account for renewals between that 142 that was there when everyone started and where they nested in the 142? Who's claiming what rate? And my guess is Polyev had the bigger, uh, quite insurmountable lead amongst the party as it existed the day the starting pistol was fired. Um, uh, number two... Uh, there are apparently whole lots of membership that were submitted with different forms of payment. So there may be as many as 20,000 members out there that were submitted with things like Canada Post money orders, which were not aligned with the rules that may be thrown out en masse. That may uh, uh, change. And, and, and I don't think that was the PolyF campaign. I, I think that was one of the others. So uh, the only thing I'm debating right now is one, two or three ballots. Who's in second place, Lewis or Brown? Yeah, And I, I can't figure it out until I know more. Yeah. And also, you know, you're, uh, Stephanie, uh, like I agree with you, 32%, they're not going to end up there. But you do wonder about Polyev's growth potential if he's somewhere around 44, you know, and you have uh, Babber drop off first and then Atchison and they don't all go to Polyev. So it takes several ballots before someone with enough votes to really decide it ends up winning it. But Tim, what, what's your take now on, on the state of the race? 
Well, this Polyev campaign wants you to think they have it on the first ballot. I mean, it's a clear strategy they're in, embarked upon right now, trying to uh, perhaps move people who are in other camps. They've moved two MPs. That doesn't mean anything, by the way. It, it, it makes a great story for uh, for the media to suggest. And, and that, yes, thanks, Steph. You did a good job there. Uh, that, uh, that that there is a, there is momentum for Pierre, and that that's a win for them. But uh, I just don't, based on what everybody has said here, I think it's really hard if, for him to win on the first ballot with all the contingent factors. And again, the public may be hearing this and hearing, you know, there's 600,000, he's got 310. Well, maybe that's the first ballot victory. It doesn't work that way. As we all know, it's not a one-for-one one sort of system. So I, I, I don't think this is done in the first ballot. I'd be very surprised if it was. Also, like we can't discount the 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 fact that up until they get this final list, Leslin and Roman, and I'm going to reference them in particular here, um, they have not had a chance to reach those people that Polyev has signed up. And there is, I don't know how much time there will be to really do that persuasion and conversion. But you saw Leslin and, and Roman try and do it during the debates, right, where they went after Polyev, especially on the question of mandates. Um, how he responded to the trucker convoy and sort of started to poke holes in his claim of superiority on this file with Leslin and Roman. I mean, look at Roman Babber, I mean, literally lost his job standing up for this. And so if you're someone that Pierre signed up on the strength of that narrative, and there's probably a certain chunk of his new members that did, once they start, if they do, if they start engaging with Leslin, if they start engaging with Roman, they may say, oh, Oh, I like them. Okay, well, you know, they're more legitimate. They're more authentic. And it's not that I don't like Polyev, but you know what? And then do they rank down ballot, right? That's the other thing. I mean, I don't, I don't have the numbers that my hands, but in the last one, not everybody ranks down ballot. So there, you know, it could be that a bunch of people just vote for Roman and then they walk. They, yeah. you know, or they rank Leslie number one because they're drawn by her authenticity. They're drawn in, but then they look at other things and say, this is a vote. You know, I'll use an analogy, actually. In the 2017 leadership race, we all remember dearly departed Deepak Obrai. And Deepak was such a voice for encouraging the party to be more inclusive and more open and really respond. And Deepak had no hope of winning, not mm -hmm. whatsoever, right? But I, a number of senior conservatives said to me that year, they were ranking Deepak first, so to send a message, to say that this voice matters, that this, you know, and I think there's similar things that will happen with Roman and Leslin, that it's, they get the number one as a point, And then the number two is Pierre or the number three is Pierre. And so that's where it also factors into this. Maybe it's not a first ballot, but it gets there eventually. Well, and there's just, there's, there's a keyword that was just used there to time. Look, it, there's three months. It's probably two months, two months until people vote. That's many, 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 many political lifetimes not just for those who are voting, but those who are competing against each other. So again, you saw this strategy by the Polyev campaign saying, look, we've got it, let's just move on was the argument effectively, but neither Brown nor Sheree are taking that bait right now. Uh, I don't imagine this is gonna turn into some kind of cuddle fest between now and when voting breaks out. So uh, there's, you know, there's gonna be more blood on the floor. We have seen through some of the advocacy stuff that we did, as you know, Eric, that 
um, after the English language debate, where the English party English language debate, the you know there was a bit of slippage for for Polyev. Um, a, will there be another debate? I, I'm sure the Polyev campaign doesn't want one. There, others are challenging for one. Party ultimately decides. It's their fiduciary responsibility. So, how does that all play out? That 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 element of time, because it's the strangest thing. So we have this great moment of 600,000 voters, and now everybody just waits, pauses, stops. Strange, very strange. I'm just in a mood today to, to fight with Tim about things. So I'm going to propose the counterfactual cuddle fest argument. Uh, because <laughs> I, I, I look forward to this. I think uh, as a known cuddler, um, Pierre now has to uh, greet Roman and uh, Dr. Lewis with a big hug. Uh, he's got to follow. If you noticed, um, a couple of members of caucus led by Garnet Genius came out and were very specific and said, Leslin will get their number one, but Pierre will get their number two. So they've been laying a strategic track that, frankly, the Polyev campaign should have been more aggressive on in saying values voters stand up and make a point on values voting, that it deserves a voice, it deserves a place, that you have a number in the party that can't be ignored, but vote for someone who's going to be prime minister. Um, so so that's going to restrain Polyev, at, at least in terms of Dr. Lewis and, and Roman mm-hmm. Baber. He's going to want to give them a hug every single day of the week. Um, uh, I think with... You know, with any leadership, though, that goes on for a number of weeks, there's two forces uh, organically that you're going to watch for that are invisible like gravity. One is momentum. Campaigns have it or they don't. Doug Ford just had a campaign where from mid-campaign onwards, he had momentum. Part of the story being told every day was, looks like this guy feels like he's winning. And that momentum builds on itself. And when you have the reverse of momentum, there's nothing worse than the toilet swirl on a campaign. It's just soul crushing every day to try and break through and prove that you might be winning when everyone thinks you're not. But the second is the bigger story when you run for leader as opposed to something else is you have to demonstrate emotional and personal growth. There has to be a story arc from the start to the end of how did you get ready for the big job? How did you demonstrate in personal narrative things you learned, how you picked yourself up when you screwed up, how you... Uh, growth. So in the for, for me, I'm going to take the positive version of what the two and a half months can bring us. The candidates have an opportunity to do a little bit of the emotional growth work that the member acquisition phase didn't allow them when punch-ups were required uh, because you had to move fast uh, uh, to get members. But I think that anyone who wants to win, and if that's the Polyev campaign now, they've really got a campaign for those number two spots. Uh, Stephanie, I saw you shaking your head a while ago when we were talking about um, the potential of a debate um, you know, I guess if you are Polyev, you don't want that. In the same way that Ford wanted the campaign to be low event, low risk, uh, Polyev wants the next two, three months to go with what we, what Chad just said, that everybody just says, oh, he's got it in the bag. I guess we don't need to worry about anything else. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's it. I think that's even on the record, right? I mean, you had recently, um, you know, the, the party does reserve the right to hold a third debate, I should say. It's not coming out of nowhere. It's actually baked into the rules of the contest that if they wanted, they could have one at the end of August. And, you know, in the last several days, you've had five of the six campaigns very vocally say, I'm in. You want to do another debate? Bring her. And you've had one that hasn't. And that one is Pierre Polyev's campaign. Um, and it's interesting, you know, to Chad's point about Dr. Lewis and his need to give them a hug. One of the, the interesting roles I think Dr. Lewis plays in this race is she is the only one who can challenge Pierre Polyev, which is to say he cannot whip around and attack her, slander her, challenge her credibility. And he can't do that for a number of different reasons. Um, 
there's some are more political than others, but I think she could play such a role in this race at holding Pierre to account because the debate stage is the only place where Pierre Polyev is being held to account in this campaign. And what I, what I mean when I say that is, you know, this is not me whining as a member of the media that he's not doing any interviews. You know, he can work his process, right? Candidates are allowed to, to work their process. And, you know, um, that's one thing, okay? But when he holds the, when he had been holding these big rallies and, you know, all these thousands of people, he wasn't taking questions. The membership wasn't given any opportunity to say, hey, what about this thing? And what about this issue that's really important to me? And I understand your big freedom narrative, but I really want to know about, this issue in my writing or something that makes a difference in my life. There's no public challenge of Pierre Polyev. The only person on that stage who can play that role without getting attacked in return is Dr. Lewis. Mm-hmm. And so I find that interesting and, and the role she could play, even I'm not trying to say like take him down a notch or whatever, but just hold him to account. And on the debate stage, that is possible. Um, and of course, Mr. Polyev is not interested in that. That is not part of his narrative, right? His narrative is I am going to save your life, you know, and also everything bad happening to you right now is not your fault. And that's a pretty powerful narrative. Um, but why would he want to be challenged, right? Why, why open himself up as the front runner to anything more? And, you know, to your point about, you know, Chad, about the narrative arc, right? I mean, it seems many observers would argue that Pierre is actually going in like the opposite direction, that like he's, he's entrenching and, and taking positions that lots of folks say the liberals are just going to weaponize that in three years. Why would you do that? Why would you say that? Um, so it'd be interesting to see if he does try for some kind of redemptive narrative in the other direction now to not moderate. No one expects him to pivot. That was, that's been fatal for other leaders, but what does he do to now start talking to those other members of the party or does he think he even needs them? And if he doesn't, if he's dismissive of that, I think that's to his peril as well. I mean, whether or not Patrick Brown wins, if Patrick Brown did in fact sign up 150,000 people from ethnically diverse and equity-seeking communities that are willing to give the Conservative Party a chance, that's pretty profound. And Pierre has to speak to those voters. I think he just has to. Also, in the name of forming government in the next election, because that's the you have to start thinking about not just this leadership, how you're going to do this for the next three years. You can't be Mr. Grump and Gripe for three more years. That's not going to cut it. Well, the, the Chuck or uh, Eric, can I just add this point too? There is the party here. What do they want to do? I mean, as has been proven uh, so far, they've, uh, they've had this exercise that has harvested this historically large list that has brought in $9 million. What do they want to do for the next three months, right? Other than they... So will, how will they exercise their fiduciary responsibility to the members? Does that mean, uh, as we're talking about another debate, what, what else does it? Because you can't just have three months of nothing now until September 10th. Uh, you can have the campaign sparring at each other a little bit, but the party has to find some vehicle, some process to channel and captivate and retain the momentum that Chad was uh, was talking about earlier. And they're very capable people on, on this LEOC team and Ian Brody's over there. I'm sure they're thinking about it. Yes, they want to make sure the counting and everything works on September 10th. And there isn't an embarrassment there, but they need to fill the void for the next three months. That's a really good point that Tim makes. Like it's befuddled me slightly that the party itself didn't embark on more of a membership drive which is to say like to, to, to help, you know, that civic education piece that Polyev's campaign has talked about needing to do that people don't understand that in order to elect the next leader, you have to buy a membership. 
Um, and the party, you would think, could have done that on their own, right? Said, hey, you want you want to say in who's best poised to defeat Justin Trudeau in the next election? Come by a membership of the Conservative Party. Now's your time. Because by the time that person is elected, if you don't like them, uh-oh. You know, like, I'm not, you know, maybe you guys say this to the people in your world. I certainly do. Like, it's like, no, you need to understand. Like, if you want an option, if you're inclined to vote for this political party or any in the next election, and you don't like who one of the leaders might be, then take out a card and vote for the person you think you might want to cast about. You're not signing away your soul. You're signing away your email address for all the time. <laughs> well, you are <laughs> signing away your soul, Steph, because you're going to get yeah. bombarded with emails oh, yeah. the rest of your life. Well, but but there's also the the unfortunate reality of, of parties don't necessarily stand with independent professional cores uh, that stay in place. Yeah. You know, a party in recent years um, has had to deal with multiple changes of leader, multiple new personnel trying to stage up, trying to run yeah. leaderships. And, you know, O'Toole's, uh, the incompetence that got O'Toole fired as leader uh, extends to how he ran the party. Yeah, no, that is true. And that, you know, Candace, I mean, it's an interesting role that the interim leader has been setting for herself, Candace, right? I mean, she obviously didn't have the same runway that Rana did. Like Rana had a number of months in Stornoway to do a lot of work, right? That was a longer leadership race than this. But again, you think about, you know, okay, Candace, like you've got the last summer, these are your waning days in Stornoway. What could you do, right? Could That's you also- embark- Let's also remember under Candace's brief watch, she didn't do the two things Rana did, reduce the number of active party members and active donors and see a decline in the polls simultaneously. The Pax Romana of Rana, Rana Ambrose is what uh, conservatives used to tolerate and call success, which was uh, the supervision of decline. Uh, oh, wait. Rana, Rana had no significant check marks in her favor during her time as interim leader. Okay, but look, let's say, and I guess we'll finish on this. So the party has had, you know, in terms of its internal uh, strengthening of its membership a, a good few months. It's now up to 600,000. That's amazing. Lots of new money coming in. Um, but has the race itself been good for the party? Uh, you know, there was the, that, the questions that a lot of the positions Poliavis take in might become problems later on for a general. Is it better for the party if they just say, we got these 600,000, let's, let's be happy with that and not rock the boat for the next three months because it might be like, I'm not sure if those debates were good for the party. Uh, Chad, you're shaking your head. But I mean, I, do- I saw lots of potential future political ads that could be pretty damaging the same way that Stefan Dio and Michael Ignati have had lots of stuff that ended up being damaging for them later on. The extension of that is only if you believe that the 32% or more of Canadians who support the Conservative coalition and the 600,000 who stepped up to be involved in the process care about the conventional mainstream view of things. Pierre Polyev, in a, in a tight leadership race, decided to talk about the sexiest of sexy political issues, money supply, and the role of the Bank of Canada. I mean, we haven't seen that since the coin affair in 62. I encourage everyone to read Renegade in Power if they have a minute. Um, and what was the response of mainstream media and uh, the Liberal NDP? party. They said, you are not allowed to talk about this. They didn't say you're wrong. They didn't say, we don't agree that the job of the governor of the Bank of Canada is the controlling of the rate of inflation. They said, you are not allowed to have those views. You are not allowed to criticize that person, despite the fact that this is a man named Tiffany, who campaigned to not have a daycare on his street because he thought 80 children would disrupt the historical nature of his neighborhood, right? The 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 circumstances outside of this leadership, be it uh, issues of a gun control bill that uh, uh, is because of things that happen south of the border in a non-analogous uh, gun safety market, 
um, or or just the effete people running Ottawa these days who've decided after COVID they're going to keep going with a new version of their job, which is telling everyone what they have to think and how they have to behave. That is a fertile territory for a conservative leadership and anyone who wants to make a new pitch on an alternative. I don't know. What do you guys think, Tim? Uh, is, has these last has it been as good as Chad Tiffany. is suggesting? His full name is Tiffany. That's that's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong yeah, with Tiffany as a name. That's right. My my full name's Timothy. Not quite Tiffany, but it's it's Timothy. Um, I I think that I think a slightly different view on the debates, uh, Eric. Yeah, I, I think they look as I said. There's been some empirical evidence that they had did hurt Polyev. But equally, if you're Pierre Polyev, yeah, you know, the normal strategy is to duck and play out the lead and, and win and do all of that. But I, I'd almost say I want one, too. Uh, he, he's going to need the practice and the experience. He knows where he's made some mistakes. He's not, uh, not a stupid person by any stretch of the imagination. And for the party, I mean... When you're being talked to, you know, there's that old maxim that all publicity is good publicity. Yes, there's some dangerous stuff in there. I think that I'm going to stand up for Tiffany Macklin uh, and uh, say that, you know, that that that's ludicrous what Polyev's talking about. And by the way, Chad, on the coin affair, you may not know this, um, but um, my grandfather resigned in support of Governor Coyne. He was the only governor on the Bank of Canada who refused to vote him out. And, and conservatives will drive them batty to learn this. Governor Coyne's gift to my grandfather, George Crosby, for his support was Andrew. Andrew became uh, my grandfather's godson. So there you go. So this is very personal to me. Stop roughing up the governor of the Bank of Canada. I hope the folks who write the political trivia uh, uh, just caught all that because that's the, that's the like that's, that's the breaker question a year from now. Well, so, hey, even it? better, Eric will like this. About yeah. a year and a half ago, my mother found a letter that Joey Smallwood had written to my grandfather, uh, th- telling him what a courageous decision he had made. Now, uh, for the real history buffs here, anybody who knows the history of Joey and Diefenbaker, Joey was no fan of Diefenbaker. So anybody who stood up against Diefenbaker in that manner uh, was uh, was found to be unique. Anyway, Eric, back to your question. The party needs to do something. Have a frigging debate. Pierre, go out and do it. Try it on. Uh, it certainly is more beneficial probably for Mr. Charest and, and potentially Patrick Brown. But who cares? You cannot just sit on your arse for three months. Uh, just uh, while we're on the topic and we're running late on time, so I'll try to keep it. Uh, but I've I've seen lots of similarities to me between Diefenbaker and Poliev in terms of their uh, in terms of their historical pa- uh, path or political path, and also potentially what a Poliev government might look like in terms of the Diefenbaker government. A little note there that Diefenbaker did not end up winning uh, very long yeah. after the coin affair. So uh, you can have a lot of a lot of passion and partisanship when you come to power, but if you don't know what to do with it and your government looks uh, a little yep. bit uh, directionless, uh, voters can recognize that. So anyway, that's just a just an editorial aside. Now, I want to get, we'll finish with this. Every time uh, at the end of the podcast, I've been asking uh, for the front runner, the challenger, and the wild card, though I think now we're just more or less saying the third person in third. Um, for me, last time it was Pulea, Brown, and Lewis. I think that's probably still the case because I imagine Sheree has points, 
probably not enough points and might fall off and help Brown. But uh, Stephanie, I don't know if you want to give us some uh, who you think the one, two, three is, or at least the perceived one, two, three uh, from the people you're talking to. I would say the perceived one, two, three would be Polyev in one and Brown Lewis some. She might be two. He might be two. She might be three. He might be three. Uh, th there's no, there's no sort of, I would say consensus view of all the folks I talked to on that question. And I would argue, I would also just point out not even from the Polyev camp, like when, when you talk to them and say, okay, who is the number two, what are you thinking? You know, I hear a lot about Lewis and I hear a lot about Patrick Brown and it depends. And you can see again, I mean, they attack Patrick Brown as the day is long. That's a bigger thing than this race, but that's for another podcast, you know? And, uh, and then there's Leslie Lewis and sort of the challenge she presents to them. Tim, last week you had it as Polyev Brown Charest. Any change there? Or last time we talked, it wasn't last week, but last time. It was, it was a long week if it was a yeah. week, Eric. Um, I'm going to stay sentimental with Charest at number three. Just sent sentimental in my heart as I supported him in God in that 1993 leadership when I was six weeks old. We were both there. We were babies. Yeah, it was still kind of baby-like. Yeah. yeah. Chad, uh, last time you said Brown Poliev, you didn't know who was first or second, and then you had Lewis in third. Uh, any change in, in that? Uh, I think today it is uh, Poliev, Brown, Lewis. And the real question for me is the strength of Baber and the strength of Charest. Um, because if Brown hopes to change his position, he actually needs the Charest campaign to be weaker than it's saying because he needs Charest knocked off sooner. If Sheree is actually in third, there could be no transfer of his ballot to help Brown mm -hmm. if the poly number is true. So single transferable ballot, I'm getting into kind of the geek math where you have to draw a chart and connect lines and the like. Um, but, uh, but I think um, uh, if, if the numbers are true right now, it's, it's Polyev by a, a significant jump ahead. And if it stacks out that it is then uh, Share Baber, Aitchison, um, uh, then I think the, the, the outcome doesn't have a lot of swing left in it unless there's a dramatic under-mobilization or difference. For instance, if Dr. Lewis's supporters all show up differently than the other campaigns have a standard rate of show, no show, and, and uh, there'll be a lot of delegate tracking and people working phone lines to figure that out in the next month or two. Yeah, it'll be three months to go, so still lots to happen. Might seem but, like uh, foreordained, but yeah, lots to go still between now and seven. Tim and I in our home provinces, let's just take the, the fact that the entire province of Newfoundland and Labrador and the entire province of PEI combined are what just signed up to be members of the Conservative Party. Like, it's crazy. What would that look like if the Conservative Party was only made up of Newfoundlanders and Prince Edward Island? It'd be one hell of a party for the party, um, guaranteed. Fun. <laughs> and when the bill comes, there'd be nobody left in the room. They all would have had to go home a half hour before. All and right, it's all well, the gatekeepers over in Ontario they could pay for. Yeah, it. damn gatekeepers. You're yeah. all troublemakers. Yes, Laurentian elites. Okay, well, thanks so much. And uh, we'll see what happens over the next three, three months. So I really appreciate you three coming on today. Thanks so much. Thank this is fun. Chad Rogers is a founding partner at Crestview Strategy. Tim Powers is chairman at Summa Strategies. And Stephanie Levitz is a reporter at the Toronto Star. Thanks to them for that chat. There was a provincial by-election in the northern Manitoba riding of Thompson on Tuesday. The NDP had previously held the seat until Danielle Adams died in a car crash last year. Eric Redhead of the NDP kept it for the party with 72% of the vote, with the PC Charlotte LaRocque taking just 28%. There were only two candidates on the ballot. 
So in the end, I didn't have the time to do an Ontario elections results reaction podcast. But now that it is a week later, you've probably heard or read all the takes that can be made about those results. I think if you listened to last week's episode with Philippe Fournier, both of us were pretty bullish that the PCs would do quite well. And of course, with 83 seats and just over 40% of the vote, they did pretty well indeed. The NDP more or less matched expectations, but I think the really shockingly bad performance of the Liberals was the surprise. They only underperformed their polls by a little bit, but they merged with just eight seats. That was rather shocking. I don't think either of us gave good odds that the Liberals would finish second in the seats, but I don't think we expected single digits. I certainly didn't. But it means both the Ontario NDP and Liberals will be looking for new leaders over the next little while. Of course, you can expect full coverage of those two leadership races on this podcast and the writ.ca. Okay, that'll be it for this week. As always, be sure to check the writ.ca for all the latest. And if you aren't already a subscriber, please consider subscribing to the site, getting access to everything, and supporting the work I'm doing. All right, until next week, thanks for listening.